0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China
2: The sun cast a pleasant warmth over the street as the woman tried to peer over the heads of the crowd in front of her. People were packed into the street so closely that there was not even room to turn around. A few yards behind her, a man was shouting out his goods, mostly beer and bread, at prices that on any normal day would get him laughed out of the market. But today, the peddler was quickly running out of stock. After all, Today was not a normal day. Today, England got a new king. The woman, Elizabeth, had been named in honour of his predecessor, and was coming to regret not following her sister to the inn further down the street. At the time, the busy tavern had seemed like the worst choice, dark and stuffy. But as anticipation grew, so did the crowds outside, Maybe if her sister was lucky, she'd found a spot by a window stripped of its glass like all the others on the road. Even if Elizabeth wanted to change her mind and join her, there was no way she could even pass through the crowd at this point. She was here until the rest of London decided she could leave. Faintly, over the murmuring of the crowd and the hawking shout of the salesman, Elizabeth heard a cheer... Again, she tried to see past the horde of people in her way, but to no avail. The murmuring took on an excited edge as people near the front shouted back, He's here! The distant cheers grew louder and closer, until even the shouts of the peddler were drowned out. Elizabeth suddenly noticed that she was cheering too, swept up in the atmosphere. They were all shouting and singing praise. Through the cries, she was sure she heard the sound of hooves and with a grunt, she pushed the man in front of her to the side, and finally, after hours of waiting, saw her king. In that brief moment, before her view was again blocked, she saw a man, probably in his late thirties, brown-haired and with a neatly trimmed and slightly lighter shade beard. He was dressed in elegant robes and accompanied by a woman and a young boy. Clearly, these were the Queen and Prince Henry, for who else would be riding alongside the king on his coronation day? The instant before the man she had shoved returned to his place, she locked eyes with the king himself. Despite the adoration of the city, the cheers and praise and petals that were heaped upon the royal family, and the gentle but fixed smile on his face, the feeling Elizabeth saw in her ruler's eyes was... impatience. She had once witnessed a procession of her namesake about ten years before, and Queen Elizabeth had clearly welcomed the acclamation of her subjects. As our Elizabeth, and every other new subject of James would soon come to learn, this was not the only difference between the monarchs. The cheering would continue long after the royal procession passed Elizabeth and reached the entrance to Westminster Abbey, itself surrounded by crowds, where the coronation would take place as St. Edward's crown was lowered to his head by the Archbishop of Canterbury, James might have considered what it was he was sitting on. He was in St. Edward's chair, the traditional coronation seat of the English monarch, named after Edward the Confessor, and commissioned by Edward Longshanks, the hammer of the Scots three centuries before. Further adding to the significance of this particular piece of furniture was the fact that within the ancient wooden frame, sat the Stone of Scoon, the traditional coronation stone of the King of Scots that had been captured by Edward's armies. Edward had integrated the Stone of Destiny into the coronation service to assert English authority to rule Scotland. James was the first Scottish king in 300 years to be anywhere near it. And just a few metres away in his tomb, Longshanks was likely turning in his grave... As James listened to his new subjects call out, God save the king, he was now the sovereign of three kingdoms, England, Scotland, and Ireland. In James's mind, he would soon merge the two larger crowns into one, a single kingdom of Great Britain. To many of those cheering his name, the lords and officials of both kingdoms, there was not a chance in hell that they would let that happen. Welcome to Pax Britannica, Episode 8, The King of Great Britain. Welcome back to Pax Britannica, as we finally begin the narrative with James VI and First. Over the last seven episodes, we have covered the situation that James now found himself in, and have hinted at the troubles he would now face as King of the Three Kingdoms. From Elizabeth, he inherited a war-torn island and a conflict with the Spanish Empire, a large number of ships and experienced sailors to crew them, a Church of England that straddled the traditional rites of Roman Catholicism and the radical reformed religion of his native Scotland. The three kingdoms were united only in the person of the king, and differed greatly from one another in almost every way. For James, this was unacceptable, and for much of his early reign he will endeavour to bring his subjects together, politically, culturally, and otherwise. Unity between his foremost two kingdoms was top of James's agenda. On the 3rd of April, 1603, the day before James left Scotland, the King gave a speech in Edinburgh. He declared, quote, As my right is united in my person, so my marshes are united by land and not by sea, so that there is no difference between them. There is no more difference betwixt London and Edinburgh, yea, not so much as betwixt Inverness or Aberdeen and Edinburgh. He goes on to say, quote, My course must be betwixt both, to establish peace and religion and wealth betwixt both countries. And as God has joined the right of both kingdoms in my person, so ye may join in wealth, in religion, in hearts and affections, end quote. It was in this speech that James made his promise to visit Scotland at least once every three years, provided that circumstances allowed it. He promised that he would not be an absentee monarch. He would not keep this promise, only returning to Scotland once over a decade later. On the 4th of April, James began his procession south. He passed through multiple cities and towns, including Berwick, Witherington, Newcastle, Durham, York, Doncaster, Newark, Burley, Royston, and Theobalds. Partly, this was good politics. At each stop, James was welcomed by his new subjects, with feasts, fireworks, and gifts, as local notables took the opportunity to make it quite clear to their new king just how loyal and fond of him they were. In his turn, James made his own speeches, promising good governance and the like. As well as making more substantial offerings. James regularly proclaimed royal pardons for all those imprisoned in a city or town jail, with the exception of those accused of serious crimes, like murder, treason, or popery. He also began distributing knighthoods with alarming frequency. The gentlemen who greeted the king at each stop were likely to be honoured, as were others at the suggestion of James's entourage. Rumours swirled that these courtiers were accepting bribes in return for the king's ear. This was the first controversy of James's reign, a cash-for-honours scandal of the 17th century, and English writers do complain about this generosity. However, really there was nothing new to any of this. Politics was personal, and personal connections to the king were invaluable, and always had been while early modern government would seem blatantly corrupt by modern standards, giving and receiving bribery was an accepted part of the system. From James's perspective, this was all for the good. He left in his wake, communities happy to have seen their new king, and a new wave of knights and officials now loyal to James. There was significant enthusiasm for the new Scottish king, and it is a credit to both James and Elizabeth, as well as to their respective courtiers, of quite how peaceful the accession was. The long procession was politically useful in a less direct way, too. The sad business of Elizabeth's funeral took place on the 28th of April. James would not reach London until May, meaning that the formal mourning of the late monarch would be over and done with by the time the new one arrived and the formal celebrations began, avoiding any awkwardness. James reached Theobald's, the home of Robert Cecil's estate, on the 3rd of May, and it was here that James held his first meeting of the English Privy Council, before reaching London on the 7th. At Stamford Hill, James was met by a welcome party of vast proportions. The Lord Mayor of London, the City Aldermen, and 500 of the leading citizens were dressed in silk robes and gold chains, and professing their loyalty and joy for their new king. From Stanford Hill, the now-ballooned procession was met by huge crowds. Reportedly, a hundred thousand extra people flooded the London area, with upwards of forty thousand people trying to explicitly meet the King. According to Roger Wilbraham, a lawyer and courtier at both Elizabeth and James's court, James could not even go to the privy without being accosted by his subjects. Back in Scotland... Queen Anna and Prince Henry Frederick began their journey to England only on the 1st of June, with Princess Elizabeth following them two days later. Prince Charles was only two, and was sickly besides, and so had been left in London in the care of the trusted Earl of Dunfermline. Anna, Henry, and Elizabeth had all arrived in London by the time of James's coronation, which took place on either the 11th or the 25th of July, depending on which calendar you use. The ceremony had been delayed due to an outbreak of plague in London, and the royal family rather quickly relocated to Winchester for the duration. The largest public festivities were delayed by almost a year, but the day itself was a grand affair. One playwright wrote that, "...the streets were surveyed, heights, breaths and distances taken... As it were, to make fortifications for the solemnities, seven pieces of ground are plotted forth upon which these arches of triumph must show themselves in their glory. End quote. The playwright Decker went on to describe the vast array of people who had turned out for the event, and the lengths they went for a good view. Windows had their glass removed to make way for onlookers, stalls and shops had their goods replaced with seated and standing children, and the streets seemed, quote, paved with men, end quote. All of London had turned out to see their new king and his family. Wilbraham described the king thus, The king is of sharpest wit and invention, ready and pithy speech, and exceeding good memory. Of the sweetest, pleasantest and best nature that ever I knew, desiring nor affecting anything but true honour, His reputation as a man of letters, having already published his two famous works, Demonology and Basilicon Basiliconduron. The first was, of course, the famous Treatise on Witches and Witchcraft, while the second was a political tract, written for the benefit of Prince Henry, on how to rule, but was published more widely and to much acclaim. His love of the hunt was well known, and as of yet was not looked on with disapproval. He spoke English, Latin, French, and Italian with fluency, and the Venetian ambassador Giovanni Scaramelli described him in glowing terms for his humble yet prestigious appearance. It wasn't all praise, though. James's personality was in stark contrast to that of Elizabeth who had wowed her subjects with her majesty and basked in the glow of their adulation. James was not like that. One writer, Arthur Wilson, records that, quote, He was not like his predecessor, the late queen of famous memory, that with a well-pleased affection met her people's acclamations. He endured the day's brunt with patience, being assured he should never have such another, end quote. Wilson was writing during the English Commonwealth, after James's son Charles had been beheaded by Parliament, so he is absolutely writing with the benefit of hindsight. Nevertheless, he goes on to describe how James's patience grew thinner and thinner as his reign went on. With the coronation out of the way, James could now focus on ruling his new kingdoms. Despite the anxiety of the English Privy Council, James kept the vast majority of them in their positions to advise him. Among these was Robert Cecil, the long-time pen-pal of James and chief architect of his inheritance. Considering this past, Cecil was an early confidant of the king, and they spent many hours together in private discussion. The remainder of Elizabeth's council remained in place too, and other English supporters of the king were promoted in rank and to the council, including Henry Howard, now Earl of Northampton, and Lord Mountjoy, the Lord Deputy of Ireland that had just brought the Nine Years' War to an end. Mountjoy became the first Earl of Devonshire for his troubles. Many of the Scots that had come south with James were duly rewarded with titles and pensions, and then ordered to get out and to return to Scotland. Of those that remained... Five were awarded positions on the Privy Council. These were the Earls of Lennox and Mar, James Elphinstone as Scottish Secretary, Sir George Home, the future Earl of Dunbar, and Edward Bruce, now Lord Kinloss. Yet few of these men would play any significant role on the Privy Council. Both Mar and Elphinstone remained in Scotland, and Lennox was not granted any formal power. Dunbar would be a successful advisor, as would Kinloss, who became master of the rolls. The Scots were still outnumbered by the English on the council, and so English control of government was seemingly assured. Except, not quite. As mentioned, politics in this era was strictly personal. And while the Scots in James's entourage may not have held much formal power in the style of officers of state, they wielded substantial informal influence over the king. James differed from Elizabeth in more than just personality. Political power in Tudor England had always been directly related to contact with the monarch. Under the Henrys, this contact was in the privy chamber, and beyond that, the privy lodgings, while the regencies of Edward gained their authority by controlling access to the young king. Mary and Elizabeth were both women – and so this required extra changes. Access to the personal lodgings of the queens, to the men of their council, was strictly unacceptable, and so the withdrawing chamber came into being, with a corresponding decrease in importance for the lodgings, and an increase in importance for the privy chamber. Under James, this reversed. Instead of the privy lodgings, it was the bedchamber that was the focus of political influence, with the privy chamber becoming much more formal and ceremonial. It was in the bedchamber that true influence mattered, and while the privy chamber was deliberately evenly split between Scots and English, the bedchamber was almost entirely Scottish. On the face of it, the Privy Council was the government of England, and it was still dominated by Englishmen. In reality, True government revolved around the king, and the king surrounded himself with Scots. The Venetian ambassador wrote that, quote, No Englishman, be his rank what it may, can enter the presence chamber without being summoned, whereas the Scottish lords have free entree of the privy chamber. End quote. This would not have been a terrible situation had the king equally split his time between the two chambers, but he didn't. As was the Scottish style of government, and one that James was used to, James delegated to his council, and then spent most of his time on hunts, or in his bedchamber with his Scottish favourites. Perfect, you might be thinking. That means that the Privy Council could get on with the job of actually running the government. Except, the Elizabethan holdovers had had four decades of the late Queen, being a central element of decision-making, and this was a hard habit to break. Another difference between Elizabeth and James was that when Elizabeth left court for a process or a hunt, her Privy Council came with her. James only took a few companions, and most often they were the Scots of the bedchamber. He declared that these expeditions were for his health. The Metropolitan Heir of London didn't agree with him, and since the King's health was the health of the kingdom, these trips were of paramount importance. He wrote to Cecil, quote, I shall never take longer vacancy from them, by them he means the council, for the necessary maintenance of my health than other kings will consume upon their physical diets and going to their whores. This didn't change the fact that the council was unwilling to regularly bypass the king just because he was absent from the capital. A councillor could sometimes manage to attach himself to the king's hunting party and have to keep up with the king while also managing the business of state and try to catch the king's attention long enough for him to give his seal or signature to official business. Even Cecil, the champion of James from before his accession, and possibly his closest English confidant, lamented the days of Elizabethan government, quote, I wish I waited now in her presence chamber, with ease at my food and rest in my bed. I am pushed from the shore of comfort, and know not where the winds and waves of a court will bear me, End quote.
1: I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now, and can you guess the twist?
2: James's leadership style rapidly became known outside of court. One of my favourite anecdotes is that in December 1604, one of the king's hunting hounds, Jowler, disappeared from the kennels, only to reappear the next day with a note in its collar. The note said, Good, Mr. Jowler. We pray you speak to the king, for he hears you every day, and so doth not us. That it will please his majesty to go back to London, for else the country will be undone. Quote. It was a good natured criticism, which James simply took as a joke and carried on as before. Now, I may have given the impression that between his hunts and voluntary isolations in his bedchamber, James didn't actually do any governing. But that's not true. He did and his first priority was peace, both in Ireland and with Spain. Partly, this was because of James's genuinely peaceful nature, but also cold hard necessity. England was bankrupt, or near as damn it, despite the riches that had been captured from Spanish America. The suppression of the Nine Years' War in Ireland had been a particularly enormous drain on the treasury, almost three quarters of the kingdom's annual revenue. While some holdouts would continue to uh, hold out in the face of the English armies, the greatest Irish lords had capitulated, most notably the O'Neill. We last saw the O'Neill at Mellifont Abbey, having been tricked into surrendering to the then-deceased Elizabeth. In the Treaty of Mellifont, the O'Neill surrendered his Irish title of the O'Neill and had his attainder reversed, restoring him to the earldom of Tyrone, and he and his allies kept the majority of their lands. This was the extent of the generosity. The O'Neill, now Tyrone, once again swore himself to the English crown. English law extended into formerly Irish jurisdiction, English became the official language throughout the island, and various anti-Catholic measures were enforced upon the Gaels. Mountjoy returned to London to become the Earl of Devonshire and a Privy Councillor, and Tyrone went with him, and in 1604 received a general pardon for any actions he had taken prior to James's accession. James was quite happy to be merciful. It allowed his officials to drastically scale back the hideously expensive Irish army. London reduced its subsidies to Ireland year on year, but at a sustainable rate, as David Edwards of University College Cork argues that the government in Dublin managed to repeatedly argue its case against the government in London, stressing the importance of keeping a strong enough garrison in the face of London's desire for austerity. Over 1603 and 1604, thousands of soldiers were paid and disbanded, and the Jacobean regime was always searching for the fine line between the cheapest possible occupation and another nine years' war. From 1604, the size of the army in Ireland stabilized at between 1400 and 3300 men, with its average size from 1605 until James's death being around 2200. This was roughly similar to the Elizabethan military before the O'Neill rebellion and drastically less than the 20 to 30,000 that had been required to suppress it. The sheer difference in size can be explained by the Irish army's return to its previous role, policing Ireland and enforcing English authority. However, following a decade of relentless war, the remaining soldiers of the Irish army took to this role with cruel zeal. To quote Edwards, For almost two years after the Treaty of Malifont, martial law commissions were allowed to remain in force. Consequently, almost every officer in the army, and dozens of auxiliary commanders, continued to enjoy power of summary execution over the majority of the Irish population, authorised to hang, or otherwise punish, anyone below the rank of a lord or major landowner that opposed them or their men. Moreover, when the pre mellifont Commissions were cancelled in 1605, rather than reduce its reliance on martial law, the Dublin government reorganised its use, to better accommodate it to post-war conditions. We will cover post-war Ireland in another episode, as we haven't seen the last of Tyrone and his friends, but it is safe to say that English policy in Ireland was incredibly severe. The change of attitudes that had developed towards the end of the 16th century towards Ireland, of an island of uncontrollable savages that had to be crushed beneath the English heel and replaced with loyal Protestants, well, that had only hardened after the war. Proponents of this policy now found an Ireland, devastated from a decade of war, able to mount only minimal political and military resistance, with agreeable policymakers and boots on the ground willing to carry it out. The other major conflict that James inherited was that with Spain. But just as in Ireland, it had largely burnt itself out by the time the Scot took the throne. Spain was just as tired of war as England, perhaps more so, since there was no equivalent easy plunder to seize from the English. It also helped that both kingdoms had seen a change in leadership. Both monarchs who had overseen the outbreak of war, Elizabeth and Philippe II, had been succeeded by their heirs, James and Philippe III. The first approaches for peace had come about early in James's reign, but negotiations only amounted to a true peace in 1604 with the Treaty of London. It largely returned relations between England and Spain to the status quo. English privateers would no longer prey on Spanish shipping, Spain would stop trying to dethrone the English monarch or restore Catholicism in England, and both kingdoms would not support rebels in each other's territory. All to the good, but much like before the Treaty of Nonsuch, the English Crown did little to stop Dutch recruitment of English volunteers to fight the Spanish on land and sea, but Spanish forces were able to base themselves in English ports. Of course, James's pet project, especially in his early years in England, was political union he pursued further union between his kingdoms, although mainly England and Scotland, despite the obvious resistance from both his English and Scottish subjects. I discussed this topic with Sir John Elliot in last week's episode, and it is an important subject that will return to the narrative again and again until at least 1707, and maybe past that. Before we look at how James actually tried to bring about closer union, let's see why there was so much opposition to the very idea. To put it mildly, Scotland and England had had a difficult few centuries together. Edward Longshanks, hammer of the Scots, had attempted to enforce his authority over his northern neighbour by military force. This had failed in the long run, repeatedly, but it set the precedent that richer, more powerful England had a right to interfere with Scotland, and there was an assumption that, like with Wales and Ireland, Scotland would one day become a sister and subservient polity within the larger crown of England. It was from these experiences with the Principality of Wales and the Kingdom of Ireland that the English gained their concept of dynastic union. It was something imposed by a stronger polity, in this case England, on a weaker. In the words of Sir John, quote, Their natural approach to union was to think in terms of outright conquest, as in Ireland, or of an incorporating union, as had happened with Wales, whereby the lesser power was subsumed by the greater. The notion of a genuinely composite monarchy was one they had yet to confront. Yet when the union had eventually come, it was a Scottish monarch, not an English one, who ruled the two kingdoms. Worse, the superiority of English political systems was not accepted by the Scots, who continued to hold their own parliaments independently of London. There was no precedent in English history for this to occur. Of course, Ireland had its own parliament, but it had little authority over the Dublin government, which was appointed by London, and it met only sparingly. Edinburgh, was a sister parliament in every way. For the Scots, they were also highly concerned about the idea of closer union with England. While James had been their king first, and his promise to return regularly had yet to be proven false, the imbalance between England and Scotland was clear to everyone. England was richer, larger, with a greater population and with a larger army and navy. The English had not been able to outright conquer Scotland, and this hostility only reinforced Scottish identity as distinct from the English. As Sir John said in our discussion, the Scottish, like the English, saw themselves as a chosen people. They had no wish to sacrifice their destiny on the altar of English ambition. For the Scots, any union, be it solely dynastic or more political, must be on the status of equality. Anything less was merely the first step to Scotland's incorporation into England. For the English, union of any kind required an unequal relationship, lest England be lost inside a larger political entity. Both kingdoms had widely opposed views on the very nature of political union, yet shared their fear of a loss of independence that would come from it. And so it's no surprise that James faced challenges to his cause. Not that he didn't try. In October 1604, James put his dreams into practice, with what he hoped was the first step on the road to unification. Overruling the disagreement from both the English and Scottish parliaments, James declared, through his royal prerogative, that he was no longer King of England, King of Ireland, King of Scots and King of France he was king of Great Britain, France, and Ireland. As an aside, James also inherited the English claim to the throne of France, despite England not having held territory in France since 1558. He had not invented the term Great Britain, but it was the first time that it was styled as a single kingdom, under a single king. The reaction was as you might have expected – both parliaments continued to address James as they had previously, no matter how often James's decrees bore his new title. Not settling solely on a rebranding, James went further, beginning the process of reducing trade barriers between England and Scotland and appointed English and Scottish commissioners to negotiate the terms of a future settlement that could unite the two kingdoms in every way. The problem was that both feared their integration into another body politic, Scotland into England, and England into this Kingdom of Great Britain. James would continue to champion this cause for the rest of the decade, and the spectre of closer union would hover for the next century. The goodwill and expectations that had welcomed James to London were not universal and became less so as the frustrations with the new monarch grew. Next week, we will be covering the conspiracies against the king, from those he faced within the first few months of his reign, and one very specific and quite explosive plot in November of 1605. As we begin the narrative proper, now would be a good time to publicise the show's Patreon, Veterans of the history of witchcraft will know all about it, but much like the arrival of James meant the granting of titles and rewards to his new subjects, so too does the arrival of a new podcast. Those who prove their fealty by pledging $1 a month will receive a barony, and a feed without any ads. Those who pledge their service and $2 a month will be granted a viscounty, an ad-free feed, and the right to vote in Patreon polls when they are held. For those loyal servants who pledge $5 a month, they will be granted an Earldom, with its associated lands and rights including an ad-free feed, the right to vote in Patreon polls when they are held, and a declaration of your lands and titles on the show. $10 a month will earn you a marquisate, all the previous rewards, and access to my scripts. For $20, you will receive a Dukedom, all previous rewards, and early access to episodes, these titles may or may not grant you the right to stand in Westminster's House of Lords, and I take no responsibility for any consequences for trying. The specific rewards may change as time goes on, based on feedback and the growth of the podcast. Current patrons have now been granted their peerages. They are, in ascending rank, The Baroness Wharton, The Baron Bray, Baron Coziel, Baron Dunk, Baron Marlow, Viscount McNutt, Viscount Davis, Lady Elaine, First Countess Dickens, Lady Jean, First Countess Buckley, Lord Christopher, First Earl of Grogan, Lady Michelle, Duchess of Devon, and the Royal Headsman, executed today. If you are interested in any of these titles, then please go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica. I'd also like to thank everyone who has submitted a review for PAX Britannica. I've read them all, and they have been overwhelmingly positive. The only criticism I've seen is mild, and it's that I talk too fast, so I've tried to pace myself a little bit better with this episode. I really liked Warswick's review, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, writing from the United States. He says, Another new podcast on a topic that is needed, the British Empire. Surprised that no one had decided to take this topic on until now. Sam does an amazing job, and I can't wait for more episodes. If you're a history nerd like me, this should be on your list of regular podcasts you listen to. Do yourself a favour and hit that subscribe button. Thank you so much, Walswick. That is wonderful praise. I was also surprised that no one had done a British Empire podcast, but I'm I'm kind of understanding why, considering the scale. Um, Remember, everyone else, you can get in touch via email, Facebook and Twitter, and I appreciate all reviews. Thanks again. To sounds Like an Earful for the music used in today's episode, to all of my nobility, and to you for listening.
1: With the Lucky Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.